Good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. just want to thank the uh, handful of children who came up uh, this morning to do that. It's hard being children in the early service. I promise you mine are all still snoring right now too, so <laughs> thank you for doing that. So this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It's printed for you on page 10 there in your bulletin. Kind of an odd passage for Palm Sunday, but we'll, we'll make it work. And as you're turning there, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? <clears throat> he, being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before your word, we come rejoicing, Lord, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. You have chosen to come down to us in the person of your Son. We rejoice, Lord, that we can know you and be known by you because of your glorious grace that we receive by your Spirit in Jesus. Lord, we ask that this morning you would open this text up to us and open up our hearts to you. Father, would you show us yet again the truth of your gospel, the gloriness of your grace and mercy and the beauty of Jesus. So we ask that you would do this, Father, by your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So boys and girls who are oh, please be seated. So boys and girls who are still here, we do have the children's version is back for you. It's at the bottom of page 10. You're going to want to keep that in front of you. I will be referring to it throughout uh, the, t- the sermon this morning. So as we come to Palm Sunday, we come rejoicing in what the Lord has done for us. And I want to get us into the mindset of exactly what it is the Lord has done for us. So I chose this odd passage. What I want to do is to get us there is I want to remind you of a movie that came out at this point 23 years ago. No, if a movie's been out 23 years, I don't have to give spoiler alerts, right? It's like, you've had plenty of time. If you haven't seen it, it's not my fault. So this movie, remember this one, Saving Private Ryan, came out 23 years ago at this point. A wonderful World War II movie. It begins and ends in an allied cemetery in Normandy, France, in modern day. The very beginning, he's anxiously trying to get to the grave. He gets to the grave, and you don't know who he is. And then it zooms in on his eye and zooms out, and it tells the whole story of saving Private Ryan. At the very end, you find out this older man is Ryan himself, and he's at the grave of Captain Miller. And he looks at his wife anxiously, and he says, Tell me I've had a good life. Tell me I've had a good life. Tell me I've been worthy. It's clear that he feels this burden. He's trembling at this point to have been good, to have been worthy, to have been enough. 
I'm using that word enough on purpose. A couple months ago, I started a pastor's book club. I, I know many of you joined me with it. Our inaugural book was a book called Seculosity. Many of you liked, some of you did not like. But one of the things that book showed us was how religious our whole world is, even while claiming to be secular. That our, our whole world is looking to prove its value, looking to prove its worth. And the word that he used for that was our whole world is looking to feel, to be enough. Here's how the author put it in Seculosity. He said this, he said, We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. That is what Ryan asks at the end of the movie. Tell me I've been enough. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be enough? What does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to be a worthy person? We all want to know, don't we? We're all hungry for acceptance. We're all hungry for this verdict over our life that says you are enough. Humans long for approval. You know, the Christian narrative says that's because we were created with God's approval, and then we lost it. And so we long to get back to what we had. See, this idea of an external source coming to us and saying good, of saying enough, is all over us, and it's all over this text. In fact, it's right where this text begins there in verse 9 with the word righteousness. Jesus says those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. I love how Luke tells us the meaning of the parable before he tells us Jesus' actual parable. That helps me a lot. He says, look, I'm going to talk about those who trust in their own righteousness, those who are looking to their own goodness. And as I've said, this is an odd text for Palm Sunday, right? This is the day we commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry, the waving of the palms and the the rejoicing in him coming, the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what I want to do is I want to show you how Jesus riding into Jerusalem is the key to you having a worthy life to you feeling that you are enough and being able to rest in that goodness. That gets us to our theme for today, which is this. God's approval descends to us because we can't climb up to it. Now, that idea of climbing might be confusing, so let me, let me tell you where I'm going here. So, boys and girls who are still here, or kids, have, has one of you ever had a sibling older brother, maybe younger sister, they've done something really good, and an adult notices and praises them for it, and you know what they're really like. They're not like that. They're faking that adult out, and the adult praises them, and then that, your sister looks over at you and gives you that little smirk, like, ha ha, fooled him again, and like, that's not who you are. I'm better than you. That little smirk, anybody ever done that? Maybe you've been the one giving the smirk. You know, Pastor Sean, um, is a little brother. I always want to say was. I still have a sister. Is a little brother. And um, I gave my sister that smirk a lot. Have any of you given that smirk to your sister? See, that's what's going on here with that word climbing. Boys and girls, let's let's make sure you're tracking with me here. Let's look at your translation there. Verse 9, the very beginning. It says, Jesus told this story about people who thought they impressed God. And so they looked down on other people who didn't, who they thought didn't. See, that's what's going on here, boys and girls. People are trying to climb up and make themselves look better than others so maybe they can impress God, so maybe God will say, you're a good person. 
So verse 10 sets the scene. Verse 9 tells us what's going on. Verse 10 sets the scene. We have a Pharisee and a tax collector. Let's make sure we understand who these people are. So Pharisees, after 2,000 years of church and, you know, 500 years of the gospel being restored and us really hit hammering the gospel, we, we hear the word Pharisee and we immediately think bad person. It has a negative connotation. It did not to them. These were the pillars of the community. These were the leaders. These were the guys who were, they were not always official religious leaders, but they were very strict. They were very conservative, they were very well respected, and they had lots of opinions on how you should do, how you should speak, how you should dress. They had the rules, man. They had the manual, they lived the manual, and they expected you to live out the manual as well. Then you have tax collectors. This one's a little interesting. Imagine if Visa and MasterCard were given all the power of the IRS, and then the United States Army would back them up. That was the Roman taxation system. Rome had different areas, and it would say, okay, we expect to get this much money from this area. And so different tax collectors would bid out what they could do, and basically they got to keep the difference. They could collect as much as they wanted, and the army would help them out, and they had to pay Rome, and they got to pocket what was left over. That sounds just like a lovely system, doesn't it? Well, Israel was an ongoing insurgency for Rome almost the entire time, especially during Jesus' lifetime. And so only the best of the best tax collectors could work there. And so they were always really powerful and really rich. And they were rich off of their own people. So you can imagine these guys were not going to win any popularity contests at all. They were hated. They were seen as traitors. They were not liked. So you have these pillars of the community, Jesus tells. And then you have this guy everybody hates. And he tells this story in such a way that we're, the original readers would assume this is the good guy, but the way Jesus tells it, he tries to get them to see the other guy as the good guy, and it's really hard for them. Because here's the thing, it's assumed. People like tax collectors, they're the worst of the worst. They're like drug dealers. They're like human traffickers. Those people don't go to church. Those people don't pray. We tried to capture this for the boys and girls. Boys and girls, let's look at your verse 10 together. Here's how we captured it for you guys. Jesus said, two men went to pray at the afternoon service. One was sort of a well-known pastor, the kind of religious man people think God really likes. The other was like a drug dealer, the kind of person people think God would never love. So that's the setup. It's kind of a crazy setup, isn't it, for Jesus to tell this story? And here's the big question behind all this that he's trying to ask. How do we fill our hungry hearts, starving for approval, acceptance, an outside verdict of good? Or as he says it, trusting in our own righteousness. How do we fill our hearts with that? And this story offers three answers. But before we get into those three answers, let me remind you real quick about parables. This is very important. Parables didn't happen. Jesus made these stories up. He was not watching people. He made these stories up. And so every single detail matters. Now, you don't read a historical account and and try to find meaning in every little single detail because that's not how Scripture works. But with parables, it is. Every detail matters. Why did he say it that way? He could have said it this way. So we're going to dig into details in a way that would not be appropriate, faithful, scripture analysis if it were historical events. Jesus made these up to tell a story and to make a point. So we're going to dig into those. So he offers us three different answers to how do we fill our hearts. He, he offers us we can climb up and claim it. 
We can fall down and beg for it, or we can look to Jesus and rest in it. So first, climb up and claim it. So the Pharisee is praying. And again, don't assume he's praying out loud. We don't know. That's not in the text. But what the text does say, it says he's standing by himself. Now, you have the ESV version printed in your bulletin. If you have something else open in your laps or on your phones, you might have a different phrase because the Greek is really vague here. We actually don't know. Is he praying to himself? Is he standing by himself? You could even translate, is he praying about himself? It's vague. And so whenever someone is vague like that on purpose, what it means is they want to kind of grab all of those meanings. He could have landed on one of those, but see, he makes it vague so he can land on all of those meanings because he's showing us the Pharisee's heart here through that vagueness. This guy separates himself from other worshipers, in other words. He's not praying with them. He's not praying around them. He's not even praying for them. Why does he separate himself? Well, it's right there in the text. It tells us he thought he was better than the others. He thought that he was so good, he didn't want to pollute himself. He was social distancing before social distancing was cool because he was theological distancing. Don't you get your dirtiness on me. I want God to see me as clean. You know, about around the year 400 A.D., an African pastor named Augustine, commenting on this, said this about this text. He said, the Pharisee was not rejoicing so much in his own clean bill of health as in comparing it with the diseases of others. See, he wasn't rejoicing that, oh God, I'm so clean and God, you love me. He's like, I'm better than this guy. See, he separates himself because he's comparing himself to others because for him, getting God's approval is a climb. And usually you have to climb over other people to get there. I want you to make sure you get this. So my mom tells this story. I don't remember this. She swears it happens. I grew up out west in Wyoming, and my family was a very outdoorsy family. If it was winter, we were cross-country skiing on Saturdays. If it was not winter, we were hiking. We were always out. And I remember, I don't remember this, but my mom tells a story that there was this one hike where my dad kind of stopped and said, okay, guys, you know, there would be four of us, me, my mom, my sister, and me, um, said, hey, um, I'm seeing bear sign, so just be careful, pay attention. You guys all know what to do. So I'm not going to tell you what to do because you're like, what do you do, what do you do? I'm not going to tell you. So anyway, so I apparently put my stick down, kneel down, untie my shoes, and start retying again real tight. And my sister, the way that only an older sibling can do, just lays into me, idiot. What are you doing? You can't outrun a bear. You're so dumb, Sean. What's wrong with you? We didn't have the best relationship. It was mainly my fault. I was a terrible little brother. And so it was just, she just nailing into me. And again, my mom says I said this as I looked at her and I said, Lou, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> That's this guy right here. In his thirst for the verdict of good, he's going to go climb up and claim it. And the key for him is to outclimb others. He thinks he can stand before God and say, I made it. Lord, you know I'm not perfect, but come on. This guy, you know I'm better than this guy, right? And that's going to be okay for him. He thinks God will accept that. You know, if you would call yourself a de-churched person, there's a good chance you've run into some of these people. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. And you, and you just noped out of church world for a while. Glad you're back. Please give us another chance. I can tell you right now that I know many pastors who have noped out of ministry because of these people as well. So I I hear you. I get you. I just want to say that that attitude is not historic biblical Christianity. 
It's called moralism. In fact, sociologists who've studied it have a specific name. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. We'll just call it moralism. And basically, the church is not about rescue through Jesus. It's about being a good person. It's about being a good moral person. But being moral doesn't get you God's approval. It doesn't. You know, Friedrich Nietzsche is often seen as like an enemy of Christianity. And he is the philosopher of our current cultural moment. And one of the things about Nietzsche that helps us is that he did not trust good moral people or morality either. In fact, he taught, you know, people don't do things for good. They do things for power. And we can see that in this religious guy. He's not doing things to be good. He's not earning things to, to, to glorify God. We can say that by how he talks about himself in verse 12. He compares himself to others. He's, he's, it's not how good I am. It's how much better I am than them. And we can see how subtle it is and how easy it is for us to slip into this because he offers a good prayer of thankfulness, doesn't he? He's glad he's not like he used to be. That's a great thing to rejoice in. And then he points to the tax collector. And he slips into resting on his personal preferences. And that's where a freedom-destroying moralism slips in. The Old Testament did not say he had to fast two times a week. He made that up. And now he justifies himself by that. And he judges others for not following his personal preference. You see, once we define a personal preference as the good thing that a church person should do, anyone who doesn't do it that way is all of a sudden unrighteous. And since we have so much of our self-esteem wrapped up in us being the good people, it's legitimately hard to get along with people who don't have that same preference, isn't it? It's really hard. This is not just a church-ruled issue. I mean, it's all over our culture, isn't it? Even though our culture claims to value diversity when it actually encounters real ideological diversity, its only answer is cancel, not get along, not tolerate. That's why our culture is fragmenting into more and more groups who cannot get along with each other because each one's morality is a personal preference. And just like this Pharisee, our culture tells us, you know, look inside of yourself for approval. And then when you believe the right things, you're a good person. And so if someone believes something different, well, they're a bad person. That's what Nietzsche means when he says people don't do good things to be good. They do it for power. And you can always tell when someone's doing goodness for power because their goodness makes them prideful, insecure, judgmental, and mean, just like this Pharisee. All right, boys and girls, I know you don't know who this Nietzsche guy is. I'm talking about what in the world Pastor Sean's doing right now. So I want to come back to you, boys and girls, okay? Let's look together at your verse 11 and 12. Make sure you're tracking with me. Here's what Jesus said, if we put it for you guys. The pastor stood up front and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not one of the bad people like this drug dealer. I do everything you ask and extra stuff too. I know you see how good I am. Boys and girls, do you have anybody in your life who likes to show off a lot? Always trying to look better than everybody else? trying to get mom or trying to get dad or trying to get the teacher or anybody to like them more by being really good or from a previous generation remember eddie haskell exactly right if you don't know who eddie haskell is let me introduce you to my friend google that's what this pharisee is doing he's being that guy 
trying to climb up and grab something from God. But as we're going to see, he doesn't have to do that because God himself bends down and gives. He doesn't command us to climb up and take, which gets us to our second way that Jesus shows us. We can climb down and maybe beg for approval, maybe beg for goodness. So, Jesus now focuses on the tax collector. He tells us the tax collector also separates himself out, but he does it for a different reason. It seems that the Pharisee himself stood like in the temple court. Like imagine him standing right here at the floor praying, probably in his head, not out loud. It wasn't that brash, but he's like right here so everybody can see him. This guy, the tax collector, the drug dealer, he slips in the back after the service starts, kind of hangs off to the side so as not to be seen. He doesn't want to draw near. Now, at this time, it was common practice for people to pray like many of you received the benediction, like this. Okay? They didn't pray like this. They prayed like this. And so we see the Pharisee praying like this, most likely, arms open, eyes up. This guy, notice Jesus specifically zooms in on his posture to show them he won't even do that. He won't lift his eyes. He, he slips in after the service starts not to be noticed. The text tells us in verse 13, he beat his breast. And that part of the story shocks Jesus' hearers, but we miss it. So about 20-ish years ago when I lived in Colorado, I had a friend who was from Iran, and we got to know each other really well. And one time we were out together having fun, and something really neat happened. I can't remember what it was, but he made this like clearly rejoicing noise that I had never heard before as a Westerner. And me and all my sophistication and college education and diversity training and everything was like, that was weird. What was that? So, which is not what you're supposed to do, right? And he laughed and kind of explained it to me. And I said, oh, is that kind of like what you see on TV and movies where the women get together and they make that weird noise? And he had no idea what I was talking about, which is a clue that the answer is no, right? Um, but I pressed on, like, you know, when like, the women get together, and they go, la, 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 la. We're in a public place, right? He stops, almost falls out of his chair. He's a big dude. He grabs my arm hard and he goes, Sean, stop that right now. Only women do that. Now, he may have been in America, But he grew up in a traditional patriarchal culture, and I shocked him because only women do that. And that's exactly how Jesus' hearers would have heard this part of the story. Only women beat their breasts in that culture, ever publicly. Only women ever cried in public, ever. Jesus wants us to see this man is acting like a woman. And in that traditional culture, it was indecent. That's how broken he is. This hated tax collector is so upset that he insults and humiliates himself. See, his outward reactions reveal his heart. The Pharisee lifted himself up to show how great he was. The tax collector debases himself to show how sinful he recognized he was. And I don't know why translations do this, but it's so clear in the Greek. In verse 13, he does not say, I am a sinner. The definite article is in there. He says, I am the sinner. You know how a bunch of guys get together and someone does something really cool and one goes, man, you're the man. Marty probably hears that all the time. I've never heard that, but I've heard about it. He goes, you're the man. That's what this guy is saying about himself. I'm the sinner. I personify what it means to be sin. You know, I talked about my Iranian friend. Let let me introduce you to an ancient Iraqi, Persian actually, a guy named Ibn al-Tayyib. He was a theologian. He was a doctor. He's a philosopher. He lived in Baghdad around 1000 AD. And commenting on this text, he says this. He says, The Pharisee talks as if there were no righteous person on earth as noble as he. 
while the tax collector prays as if there were no sinner on earth as evil as he. What a great way to put that. See, he confesses his sinfulness. There's no one worse than me. Please be merciful to me. But he doesn't actually say, please be merciful to me. Again, every detail matters. This is not the normal word you would use for mercy. It's actually the word used to describe the sacrifice itself not the results of the sacrifice. It's the word used in the Old Testament, if you've been around church world or Sunday school, for mercy seat. That sounds familiar to you. It's that word from the Old Testament. It's where they would actually sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice. So literally this man looks at God and says, be mercy seated for me. He's asking for righteousness. He's asking for God's approval. And remember where Jesus sets this story. It's the afternoon sacrifice. The priest kills a lamb for the sins of the people, sprinkles its blood on top of the altar, then he comes out, every afternoon he does this, comes out and he declares it effective. Your sins are forgiven. God has accepted you. And it's in that moment in the story that the tax collector utters the prayer, verse 13. Not be merciful to me, but an ultra-literal rigid translation is let that sacrifice be for me too. Because he has nothing else to stand on. He's longing for grace. But because a guy's like the Pharisee, he's assuming that's not for him. So he's begging, will you please let that work for me too? See, and the question Jesus asks at this point is, which one of these men is justified? And because of the way he tells it, we all want to say the tax collector, the original hearers would have too, but everything in their culture, everything they had been taught would say, I I know you want me to say this guy, but we all know it's these guys because God's a taskmaster. God wants us to follow the manual, and these guys follow the manual. I I wish this were true, but it's got to be this guy. Everybody knew you wanted to be like the Pharisees. You tried your best to be that person. You weren't that person. You felt guilty for not being that person, but that's who God was. And that's why the tax collector is huddled in the corner crying because he's not that person. And he has no hope of being that person. And then Jesus comes along in verse 14 and he destroys those common ideas. Jesus destroys what everybody knows. Look with me at verse 14. What does he say? He says, this man, referring to the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. It's not just that, yeah, he gets approval too. It's like, no, This guy doesn't have it. This guy does. Everything you think you know about this mean, harsh taskmaster God is wrong. Boys and girls, let's look at yours, your verse 14. Make sure you understand what Jesus says here. Jesus said this. He says, listen to me, Jesus said. The dealer was made right with God, not the pastor. Everyone who tries to climb up to God fails because God comes down to sinners. See, boys and girls, God doesn't tell you to work really hard. God tells you to receive. And we don't believe that, do we? Even now, I know my heart does when I read it, even now your heart is defaulting to climbing, right? Okay, okay, I won't be like the Pharisee. I gotta try harder to be like the tax collector. You gotta try harder to be like, isn't that climbing? I think that's climbing. I gotta, I gotta really repent. I gotta really be sorry for my sins. See, since you can't climb up and grab it, oh, we, must, we have to climb down and beg for it. Okay, I can do that. No. Jesus offers a third way. You look to Jesus and rest in it. Jesus told this story. 
because it's the story of what he would do on the cross in a few days. That's why we're landing on this thing on Palm Sunday, because Jesus rode into Jerusalem to accomplish this. He embeds himself with sinners instead of standing apart from sinners, instead of excluding them and excluding himself from them. He gets in there and he humbles himself with the very people who would kill him. So he could then exalt them in his death and resurrection. I want to go back to the opening story. If you've seen the movie, if not, it's a good movie. You should see it. The older Ryan is left with this burden. He had to know he'd, left, he'd led a good life. He's tr- shaking. He's trembling. The actor does such a great job portraying the emotion in the scene. Why is he so upset? Because Tom Hanks' character haunts Ryan. His final words, spoiler alert, as he died fulfilling the mission of saving Private Ryan. You remember? He grabs him and he looks him in the eyes and he says, earn this. Earn this. And he dies. And it haunted Ryan clearly for the rest of his life. His life was saved, but he was placed under a burden that he clearly struggled with. You see, Jesus rode into Jerusalem not to taunt humanity, not to haunt humanity with a burden of earn this. Be good. Try harder. No. Jesus voluntarily rode towards his death to rescue us. And and as he died fulfilling the mission of saving his people, he looks at us and he doesn't say earn this. He says have this. See, Palm Sunday reminds us that God's love came down. Today, remember that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. He didn't command that we climb the mountain to see him. He rode there to die. All four Gospels tell us he knew what he was doing. See, because we couldn't climb up to him, Jesus climbed onto the cross for us. When we're tempted to climb our way up to God, Palm Sunday reminds us that God's approval comes down all the way to the cross where we see Jesus hanging as the sinner, the one who became sin for all of his people, the one who humiliated and debased himself in order to raise up his family so he could die in our place. See, Jesus told this story because it's the story of what he would do Jesus is the only human who did earn righteousness. He's the only human who could stand before God and say, look at me. And he does that, but not to look down on sinners, but to say, don't look at their sin. Look at my righteousness, Father. And in becoming the sinner and humbling himself, he became the sacrifice of mercy that the tax collector begged for in verse 14. When he looks and says, let me have that sacrifice too, Jesus says, okay. Here you go. It's called the cross. And then his resurrection, he exalts his people. He's true to the promise that he will lift up his people, giving you complete approval, giving your exhausted heart the enough it needs. Jesus promises here at the very end, you will be exalted because in Jesus you can be enough. You can put away your climbing gear. Use it for recreational purposes only, not spiritual. Because that's biblical Christianity. Jesus comes down. Has that gotten a hold of you? 
Has that really gotten a hold of your heart? That you can put away your climbing gear? Christian or not, don't let another Easter season go by without you resting in the grace of God in Jesus and basking in His approval over your life. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you when you challenge the default modes of our heart. Lord, most of us, I, myself included, we have to admit, Lord, we, we, we default to climbing. We default to competing. We default to trying to impress you. Lord, would you help us to own the reality of our sin before you and rest in Jesus alone? Lord, would you show us the beauty of Jesus and captivate us with your love yet again? Lord, we ask that even this week you would work on our hearts. And those of us who do know you, Lord, would you call us to a deeper repentance, to a deeper walk with you, that we may rejoice in the beauty of Jesus. And Lord, we pray for those who are here who do not know you. Father, we pray that you would be true to your promise that as Jesus Christ is lifted up, you would draw all people to yourself. Would you do your work of salvation even now, Father? We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.